I'm going to start this morning in Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. I've never really known how to say the word, the name. But Habakkuk chapter 3, I want to talk to you this morning on revival. There are some things that, uh, that we've been leading up to in the, the previous teachings that we've been doing uh, before we left last week. And um, I really didn't intend to go this direction, but it's the only thing that's, or the biggest thing that's on my heart. And uh, so I want to share a little bit with you this morning, and we'll just kind of see where we go from there. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2, the last part of the verse. Uh, let me give you a little bit of, uh, um, well, let me read it, and then I'll, then I'll make my comments. Verse 2, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. Here's something that the Lord had, uh, had spoken to Israel. Uh, Habakkuk was a, a contemporary of Jer- uh, Jeremiah. This is at the time. Or, um, well, the, really, the time approaching the Babylonian captivity, and uh, and God has spoken through Jeremiah the prophet, saying that those that are prophesying that you won't go into captivity are, are in error. They're prophesying out of their own hearts. This is what's going to happen. It's going to happen because of your own disobedience. So this is the speech that he's talking about that he was afraid of, and I don't think he means fear like you'd be afraid of a snake or something like that. But he knows that what God's word, what God has declared by his word, is going to take place. So he knows they're going into captivity. So he says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, like I said, I want to talk to you about revival, and that's what Habakkuk is, uh, uh, is asking for. He's asking for revival. He's asking for God to revive the people. Um, he knows what they're facing. He knows they're facing Babylonian captivity because of their own disobedience. And so let's define our terms. Let's talk about the what and the, and the, and the when of revival. If you look at the history of Israel, it's pretty easy to see how things operate. God does a work, draws his people to himself, and then his people begin to steadily decline into disobedience, into error, and so forth. It goes on for a period of time and the people get worse and worse and worse, further and further and further away from God until God does something special to bring them back. And then when he brings them back, everybody gets excited about obeying God again and serving God from their heart. And then the cycle begins again. They begin to deteriorate and decline further and further and further until God does another special event or a special occasion. In most cases in the Old Testament, it was some form of deliverance. That, uh, that would bring the people back to himself, but it would be for short, it would be short-lived. It would be for a short period of time. Now, if man was not disposed to disobey God, there'd be no need for a revival. If man was disposed otherwise, in other words, if man naturally obeyed God from his heart, willingly, diligently, dutifully, then there'd be no need for a revival. But the fact is, and the book of Romans brings this out, Paul brings it out tremendously in the book of Romans, the degenerate nature of fallen man, that there is no goodness in him, there is no holiness in him, there is no redeeming quality in man whatsoever. So when God does something to excite man's passions, and usually that's what it is, usually a revival is the excitement of something physical, something in the soulish realm, to where man chooses to change his will toward God, to serve or obey God from his heart, that that puts him back on track for a period of time. But as the Old Testament shows us, that cycle was repeated again and again and again and again and again. Now, Jesus was, was sent to the earth 
uh, with the intent from God's part, from God's perspective, to change that cycle. Amen? In other words, the cycle that that, uh, is to be changed is not that God is through doing special events to draw himself and to draw people back to himself. Now, in the Old Testament, you need to realize that revival in the Old Testament was just a reviving of the people of of Israel, the people of God, to convert them back to a willingness to obey God. Revival in the New Testament is totally different. It's not just to bring the, the people of God back to himself to revive or refire those who have already made Jesus the Lord of their lives, but also to result in the conversion of those who never knew God. See, revivals weren't intended in the Old Testament to proselytize Gentiles. Revivals are intended in the New Testament to win the lost. Now, what is it about a revival that wins the lost? The change in the church. See, whether we know it or not, people are looking at us. They may not even recognize that they are looking at us, but they see us. And they're affected by who we are and the way that we operate. And if we claim to be Christians and they don't see a difference in us than what they see in themselves, then what incentive is there on their part to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior? If the church stood up and said to the lost as a whole, accept Jesus and come be like us. Is that really going to be an incentive for anybody to make a change? But if the church is revived, if the church is on fire, if the church is operating in victory by the word of God and the power of God in the name of Jesus, and we stand up and say, come be part of us, then that's something that makes an effect on the world. Now, there's, uh, let me give you a little bit of a history lesson. There were a couple of times in, uh, in American history where there were great revivals. Now, the revival is kind of an ambiguous term. Uh, for example, Brother Hagin used to talk about the healing revival. In other words, from uh, 1947 to 1956-ish, somewhere around there, um, there, was a, there was a move of healing, a wave of healing that operated in the, in the, um, uh, the United States. But that's not really what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about a revival, I'm not just talking about a move of God. There were some minor things. I'm talking about something that God did where the country was concerned. There were two times in American history that there were considered to be awakenings. An awakening is a revival. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, that's what it is. It's uh, it's the church waking up. There were two times. The second one I want to talk to you about a little bit. The first one was right around the time of the revolution, uh, 17... 78-ish uh, was when the, the first great awakening took place. But the second one was a little bit later. It, uh, it was somewhere around 1725, I think it started, and lasted until about 1735. Uh, uh, it was about a 10-year period of time. And during that period of time, you can well understand that the, that the population of America was, uh, was, greatly, was much less than it is now. It was greatly concentrated in the northeastern part of the, what we know of as the northeastern part of the United States. A lot of the expansion west had not taken place at that time. And, uh, and so it was, it was a, a centrally localized type of work of God. But, uh, but America was a new nation. And uh, one of the things that I found interesting is there was, there was a Frenchman that, whose name is Alexis de Tocqueville. Many of you may have heard of him. 
he wrote a book that was published in 1835 that was uh, uh, entitled Democracy in America. Now, he was a, a Frenchman, didn't know anything about America. The only thing he knew was that America had, had a revolution. They were a new country. But France had a revolution just about, uh, well, the French Revolution was, what was it, 1789 uh, to, ni- to 1799. So it was 10 or 15 years later uh, or whatever. The, my math's not real good this morning. But anyways, a few years later than, uh, than the American Revolution, France's revolutions never lasted. France has had five revolutions since America had hers. Now, what's the difference? The, first, uh, the second French Revolution was less than 50 years after the first one. And so France is looking at the time in 1830, 31, somewhere around there, France is looking at themselves as contemporaries of America. We're both new nations. We've both thrown off monarchical rule, the rule of the monarchy. And so we want to examine America. There are a few years ahead of us. We want to examine America. And so the French uh, leaders sent de Tocqueville to America in 1831 to uh, uh, um, examine the prison system. They want to know how does America do its prisons? How does they keep prisoners and so forth? Well, de Tocqueville used that as an excuse or a cover, literally, to examine democracy in America. And in 1835, a book was published by him or that was written by him. I don't know who it was published by. But the title of the book was Democracy in America. And that book has been invaluable in American history and, and examining what America looked like from the outside. We've got a lot of founding father documents and stuff like that. But his book was invaluable, is invaluable, in, de- in determining what America was really like and what did it look like from the outsiders. Well, when he got here in 1831, it was right in the middle of the Second Great Awakening, the Second Awakening in America. And the first thing that he said that he was impressed by in America was the spiritual condition of the nation. That's pretty good for somebody just getting off a boat. I mean, he's not part of the revival. He comes in and he sees that America is a spiritual nation. Now, folks, you need to understand something. The reason that America is different from France, we both had the same goals, the same ideas about being free from monarchical rule, the rule of the monarchy. The difference between America and France is one and only one thing. And that is America built its revolution on a biblical foundation. France just killed their enemies. France just cut the heads off the people that were ruling over them. There's no foundation for theirs whatsoever. That's why France has always been up and down, back and forth and so forth. So, during the Second Great Awakening, what was known as the Second Great Awakening, there was a man that was used... In a great, great way, his name was Charles G. Finney, Charles Grandison Finney. Now, Finney was a, a, a lawyer, an unsaved lawyer, that tried to disprove the preaching of Jesus. So he studied the Bible. Well, you know how that works. You read the Bible and you find out what the Bible says, and God starts working on your heart, and he got saved. God called him to the ministry. Now, he was a lawyer. The reason that he was... Uh, um, uh, working to disprove uh, the preaching of Jesus is because he was a lawyer and he was thinking with a logical mind. And so there were things about the preaching that he heard of Jesus that didn't fit with his logical thinking. So he thought he'd fix everybody. Well, he got fixed. He got saved and then God called him into the ministry. Now, he didn't stop thinking logically when God saved him. And that logical mind became something that God used in a great, great way in the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening. 
Finney had a problem with the, some of the preaching that he heard and how it lined up or didn't line up with the, with the Bible that he was reading. Now, at the time that these things were taking place, there was a great agricultural um, improvements, advancements, and so forth. And so he used some of the things that people, and most of uh, the society at that time was an agrarian, uh, agri- they grew crops. And so this, kind of, this fit real well with the common man's understanding of how things work. Now, the, the prevalent idea of the day was that any revival, any move of God would be a sovereign act of God. Calvinism was very well known. Calvinism is God's in charge, God's sovereign, so anything that happens is God's initiative, and, and that was it. And that was passed on through Jonathan Edwards and some other great preachers and so forth, and it was the major idea, the pre- uh, prevalent notion of the day. If God's going to do anything, it's up to him. Woe is us. We were just left down here to, to fend for ourselves type thing. And, uh, and Finney turned that up on his ear. He said that since we know that God created the earth, since we know that God created the universe, he created the system whereby the worlds and the universe works, what did God then do? Did God sit back and say, well, okay, now it's left to run by itself? That's deism. Deism is the idea that God created everything, but he's not involved now. But Finney took the position, as many others did as well, that God is always overseeing and administrating his creation. And as a result, he created certain things to work in certain ways. And he used farming as an example. He said, wouldn't it be stupid for a farmer to plant a crop and then sit back and say, well, if it's the will of God for it to grow, it'll grow. And if not, it won't. He said, you don't do that with your crops. You tend them because you know if you tend them and properly take care of them, they will grow because of the power that's in the seed. And then you take them over to the scripture where it says the word of God is the seed. So he said, for us to sit back and expect or hope for or or desire or want God to do something without expecting that God's means and measures, those are two words that he used very much, means and measures to work the way that he intended for them to work would be foolish. He said God gave means and measures for revival. Folks, I want you to listen to me really, really carefully. He said God gave means and measures for revival. And if you operate according to those means and measures effectively, you can have the revival that God intends for us to have. Now, let me read some things to you from his book, Lectures on Revival. And these were um, Finney's health deteriorated in his latter years, and so he had to come off the the evangelistic field. Uh, Maybe I should give you a little background. Finney would go into a town, and after having done, after applying the means and measures ahead of time, he'd go into a town, and and everybody in town would get saved. I mean, the the bars, they used to call them grog shops in those days. The bars would have to close down because there'd be no clientele. People would go out of business uh, in, in bars and taverns and stuff like that that were operating and, uh, you know, selling ale and, and stuff like that because nobody would, nobody would touch it. Everybody would get saved. Everybody would give the lives to the Lord. And so it, was, it had a great impact on everybody. Well, you could well understand that would get attention not just in the city that they're in but all around the, the region and the countryside surrounding. And so when Finney would advertised that he's coming to a town and he would do some of the advanced work ahead of time and 
and uh, the means and measures to, to establish a revival before he ever got there, everybody was expecting. Everybody knew what had happened in other places before, and so it was, it was quite a thing. There were, uh, there were reports of, of uh, uh, the application of the means and measures, and I'll tell you what those are as we go forward. But the application of those means and measures would cause everybody in, on whole streets to get saved. There was one, uh, one town that they went to where everybody on one long street uh, got saved except three people. And the absence or the, the, the lack of those three people getting saved got everybody so stirred up that everybody immediately went to prayer. And within a couple of days, those three got saved. It wasn't, that people getting, it wasn't the people getting saved that surprised everybody. It got to the point when people didn't get saved, that's what shocked them. Now, here's what Finney said about revival. Oh, I, I didn't finish my thought. In his latter years, his health deteriorated, and so he had to come off the evangelistic field, and so he, he stayed home and, and pastored a little country church. And during the time that he was pastoring, he wrote, or actually he didn't write, somebody transcribed the lectures that he gave on revival because he's trying to pass on the things that he found out. Now, some of the things don't seem to fit, but, for example, he talks a lot in... in uh, um, well, the, the title of the book is Lectures on Revival and Religion. He means a different thing by religion than what we do when we use the word today. I don't consider religion to be a positive term, but he did. Because for him, religion meant obedience to God. And so when he's talking about religion, he says religion is man-made. In other words, what he means by that is religion is, to, is completely up to the individual to choose to obey God. Well, that's a positive thing. For us, we look at religion in a different way, at least I do. I look at religion as bondage, a man-made system that keeps you away from God rather than brings you to him. So I, I need to be real sure that I define my terms. I'll try not to use his term religion because we kind of give it, a, or at least I do, give it a different, uh, different meaning and it's usually a negative meaning. But for him, it was positive. He considered religion to be a positive thing. He considered conversion to bring somebody into religion, meaning obedience to God as man's chosen duty, willingly choosing to obey God. So when he talks about revival and religion, he means different things than than what we do. One of the things that he says, and when he talks about the deterioration of man and the the natural uh, disposition of man to disobey God, one of the things that he said was was very interesting to me, and that is uh, he used the term um, principle. He said, the fact that man is so disposed to disobey God is because there is no principle in religion. And he's talking about the church of his day. He's talking about the condition of people in his day. He would most probably come to our church and say, this is a church that has principle of religion because we choose to obey God. That doesn't mean we're perfect. doesn't mean we never miss it. Nobody has ever get to that point, I don't guess. Jesus was the only one. But we choose to obey God. Now, the difference is, he said this, he said if there was principle of religion, if there was the principle of religion that would hold people steady, there'd be no need for revival. Well, that would be true in the sense that there would be no need to wake up the church, right? But that doesn't mean that there wouldn't be a need for revival to reach the lost. There wouldn't be a need for us to be on fire to reach the lost. Now, he said if the church could ever get on fire and have maintained that principle of religion then we just have a constant revival. 
I think that's God's plan. I don't think it's God's plan to come, come in and out of our lives or in and out of the church's life or in and out of the country, the operation of the country. I think it's God's plan for Jesus to live on the inside of us all the time and for us to just affect the world because we're alive. For example, I see it this way. Jesus was a living revival. He didn't have good days and bad days when it came to the power of God. He didn't have good days and bad days when it came to fellowship with God. He's a, he's a living, walking revival. Well, that's who we're supposed to be, isn't it? Aren't we supposed to do the same works as he did? Aren't we supposed to operate in the same way that he did and show the same life that he lived here on the earth? Well, what is it that's going to bring us to that place? And here's what Finney never saw. He, sa- he, he saw what it would take, but he never witnessed it. He never experienced it. What would it take for us to live that way and operate that way on a consistent basis? Well, there's only one thing, and that is knowing who we are in Christ. That's what he said was missing from the church. Nobody knew who they were in Christ back then. They didn't know. As I said, the predominant uh, idea and and belief was Calvinism, the sovereignty of God. And he said this about Calvinism. He said, there is no greater tool of the enemy to keep people out of the things of God than the idea that everything initiates from God. And folks, that's what sovereignty of God doctrine is all about. Well, God's in charge. God picks and chooses. He picks who gets saved and who goes to hell. Hope you're on the winning side. And that's not the way it works. And that's that's a tool that the enemy uses to keep people from applying what Finney called the means and the measures to do the work of God. So let me read some things to you. He's got uh, five or six points. When is a revival of religion needed? Number one, when there is a want or a lack of brotherly love and Christian confidence among those who, he calls them professors of religion, he means Christians, those who claim to know Jesus, then a revival is needed. You know, one of the things that's always, and I'm just going to have to be brutally frank with here, this is one of the things that I've I've been trusting God to change in me for a long time. You know how you're supposed to pray for the lost? I never did that. Growing up, I never did that. I knew I was supposed to. You know how you're supposed to care for the lost? I really didn't. I mean, it's not like I wanted somebody to go to hell. It wasn't like I was consciously picking and, and, and saying, well, that'll be good for them. But I didn't really care. And it's only been since I've started praying for the move of God over the last seven or eight years that I've really started developing a, a, a care and a concern for people that don't know Jesus. Now, folks, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands who can relate to that because I know everybody can relate to that. We know we're supposed to care about people getting saved. But most of the time we get so busy in our own stuff, who has time to bother with it? Now, there may be somebody that's close to us, a friend or a neighbor or a loved one or something like that, that we have a a natural concern for, that that will stir our desire for them to have a spiritual benefit. But outside of that, do we really care? I would submit to you that most of the church world doesn't really care. I was part of that group. I'm not throwing rocks at anybody else. But if we don't care, then wouldn't that be a good sign that something needs to change? What does that mean? That means we're so involved in our own stuff that we're distracted from where we are on God's timeline.
he made this statement. Let me read this to you. It is in vain to call on Christians to love one another with the love of complacency as Christians when they are sunk down in stupidity. Now, that's old-timey talk for saying it's ridiculous to think that Christians are going to love one another if, we don't, if we're so involved in ourselves that we couldn't care less about each other. That may be where the church is today, folks. He said that's one of the major, major signs. That's the first thing that he said is a sign of when a revival is needed. If we don't love each other, then how are we going to love other people? The, the lost, in other words. Here's the second thing that he said when a revival is needed. When there are dissensions and jealousies and evil speakings among Christians, then there is a great need of revival. He said, these things show how far Christians have gotten from God. Remember some of the things we've been teaching and seeing in the word about miracles in the church? Miracles in the early days of the church, they were with one accord. When you see the miracles stop taking place in the book of Acts, it's when they start dividing up us against them, Jews versus Gentiles, Paul versus Apollo, or Peter whoever that's one of the greatest ways that the enemy tries to stop to hinder a move of God and to stop one when it starts by getting people to divide themselves against others in the church he said religion cannot prosper with such things in the church and nothing can put an end to them like a revival I would submit to you folks that we need a revival Third thing he said is that when a revival is needed, he said when there is a worldly spirit in the church. Check. Again, it shows how far we are from God. Fourth thing he says is when the church finds its members falling into gross and scandalous sins, then it's time for the church to awake and cry to God for a revival of religion. Can't tell many Christians from the unsaved. And we don't think anything about it. We just don't think anything about it. Three things happened in the last week, or maybe 10 days. I don't know. I've kind of lost time being on vacation. But three things happened that I read about over the last week or 10 days in the church that I found just fascinating. The first was a positive. The Baptists, Southern Baptists, said that you don't, uh, that being filled with the Holy Spirit, well, they didn't use that term. Let me say it the way they said it. Speaking with other tongues doesn't disqualify you anymore from being a missionary. A Baptist missionary. <laughs> now, whether you know it, folks, that could open the door for revival among the Baptists. Because if they're now saying, if you speak in tongues, you can still be a missionary, they won't let you stay in the country. <laughs> but, hey, you've got to start somewhere, you know. But that's huge. That's huge. That's why John Osteen had to leave the Southern Baptist denomination, Southern Baptist Conference. He got filled with the Holy Ghost. They, they put him on trial. That's huge. But then there were two other things that aren't so positive. One was the United Methodist Church declared that homosexuality is not contrary to a Christian lifestyle. Isn't that interesting? The Bible says it is, but I guess they know otherwise. The third thing is just mind-boggling to me. And that is the Presbyterian church declared this week that the redemptive work of Jesus is not just for humans. But that it could apply to artificial intelligence and robots and machines. 
this is a sta- this is not just one pa- idiot pastor standing up and saying something and before he just carried off to the loony bin. This is the church statement saying the redemptive work of Jesus could be a deciding factor to keep machines friendly toward humans. Folks, if that's the state of the American church, I submit that we need something from God. A revival might be in order. What is the church doing? Now, folks, when I'm talking about church, please don't take anything I'm saying personally. I understand that you're after God. I understand that you're, that you're interested in the things of God. I understand that you are doing as much of the word in your life as you know how to do. I, I get that. I'm not throwing rocks at anybody here, but my goodness, if we look at the church overall, if we look at the American church just overall, what in the world are we doing? How can we expect to have an impact on the world for good, for God, by accepting what the Bible calls sin to be okay and talking about the redemptive work of Jesus for machines? I'm dumbfounded by that one. But thank God the Baptist said you can still be a missionary if you speak in tongues. (laughs) Here's another thing that, uh, oh, let me read uh, another point that he makes about when the church finds its members falling into gross sins, it's time for a revival. He said this, he said, when such things are taking place, as give the enemies of religion, and again, he's using religion as a positive term, which give the enemies of religion an occasion for reproach, it is time for the church to ask God, what will become of thy great name? Now, please remember that phrase. He said, when the church is in such a spiritual state that you can't tell the church from the unsaved, that's the time to ask. Here's a hint about his prayer. To ask God, what will be made or what will come of thy great name? In other words, it sounds like he's putting the responsibility over on God. What are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about this? That's a lot the way that Jehoshaphat prayed in Second Chronicles chapter 20. Lord, behold, look how they've come to reward us. Look how these five enemy armies have come to reward us when you wouldn't let us invade them when we came out of Egypt. Look how they've come to reward us to cast out of your possession. What are you going to do about this, God? Folks, we need to realize that God's on our side in the things that we want from our hearts. He's on our side where revival and a move of God is concerned. He's on our side when the working of miracles is concerned. He's on our side on this stuff. It's not like we've got to talk him into something he doesn't want. Another point that he makes, the Finney makes in this about when a revival is needed. He said, when the wicked triumph over the church and revile them, it's time for the revival of religion. I don't want to get too current events about stuff because people have hot button issues and and, and it's just just not worthwhile to get involved in so much of the stuff. But let me pose it to you as a question and trying to make my point. How many of you five years ago, certainly 10 years ago, but how many of you five years ago could have imagined that gay marriage would be the issue that it is today? 
How many of you could have imagined just a few years ago? Folks, you need to realize, three years ago, Obama and Hillary Clinton's position of gay marriage is the same as ours is today. Three years ago, three years. Marriage was defined by even those that are now the the loudest voices of gay marriage. Marriage was defined by them then as, as a union between a man and a woman. What happened in three years? And how could it happen so fast? What does it mean? It means the world is triumphing over the church. It doesn't mean we're without power. It doesn't mean woe is us. It doesn't mean we're going down the tubes. We're not. We've got the word and we've got the name of Jesus. But you need to realize, not all the church knows they've got the word in the name of Jesus. We're in a small minority in that group. But we need to realize what's going on around us. Well, what's the next thing going to be? What's three years from now going to look like? I, you know, folks, I, I, I don't mean this to sound defeatist. But I see where the Bible says the world will get worse and worse. There's a lot of things that people are wanting to pray against and pray to change and the, and the gay marriage thing. Let's pray for the Supreme Court to, to make the right decision and so forth. Well, what if they do? Then what? Do you think the other side is going to give up? Then what? I, I see a lot of things just as inevitable. I don't want them to be that way. And if I had a witness in my heart to change them, I would certainly pray and, and, and try to. But it's like Brother Hagin used to tell us. He said, you've got to go as much about what God doesn't say as what he does say. If I'm praying about gay marriage and God doesn't take hold together with me or doesn't prompt me to pray about it, I've got to take that for what it's worth. There's got to be a reason he's not telling me to pray for that. Because if my prayer was going to make a difference in that, wouldn't he be telling me? So as I said, I don't want to sound defeatist about a lot of this stuff, but I consider a lot of these things inevitable. The Bible says men will get worse and worse. And one of the things it identifies as a sign of the last day's uh, condition of the world is homosexuality, rampant homosexuality. So as, as far as I'm concerned, this is just my opinion. I'm not telling you what God has told me or anything like that. But as far as I'm concerned, gay marriage is just, it's, it's already done. Sadly, it's already done. Well, then what's next? Then what's next? I mean, abortion. My goodness. The Democratic Party now won't even state that it's not okay to kill a seven-pound baby just before it's born. Their posi- they, won't, they won't make a statement on that. That's the question. If a seven-pound baby, can a seven-pound baby be killed in utero? Well, the answer, the the official position of the Democratic Party is that's between the mother and her doctor. Well, then what? You may not be aware of this, but there's a push. It's small so far, but you know how things grow. There's a push at this point to identify abortion as legal up to the point of viability. Now, viability used to mean when it could live on its own. But now they're starting to say, there's a group that's starting to say, viability could include after it's born and the mother realizes, I can't take care of this child. Which would open the door to infanticide up to about two years of age. Now, that sounds far-fetched. And I'm not some conspiracy theorist type guy. 
mean, I like them on TV, but not in real life. But is that any more far-fetched than what we would have imagined things could happen or the impossibility or what we would have considered to be the impossibility of things happening today? Not in my thinking. So what's next? Folks, the church needs a revival. Not to change the world, but to reach the lost. The devil's always going to have his crowd. The Bible seems to indicate that the gate to hell is a lot wider than the gate to heaven. Not by God's choice, but by man's choice. So you're not going to change society's ills. I'm not talking about a a revival to change society's ills. I'm talking about a revival to reach the lost, those that are hungry and those that are open for God. Because how are they going to find God without a revival, without something that's operating, Jesus operating in the church? How is the lost going to find Jesus? They're being swallowed up and drowned in the, the, the spirit of the world. And what is the church doing? Saying homosexuality is okay. Saying let's get the machine saved. I'm still boggled by that. I, anyway. Okay, one, another point that he makes is when sinners, when revival is needed, when sinners are careless and stupid and sinking into hell unconcerned, then it's time the church should bestir themselves. Folks, there used to be a, um, even among the unsaved, there used to be a, a decorum, a level of decorum that was accepted in society. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't find the thing so openly cried in, in the, the, the marketplace and in the uh, in, in, the, in an open society like there used to be. It, Beth and I were, were sitting with Katie last summer at, uh, at a restaurant, and there was a um, young couple. I'm going to guess they were in their maybe their late 20s with a, a small child, three or four, five-year-old child, something like that, and every word out of their mouth was the F word. Well, they, no, they sprinkled that in with some other curse words too. But, I mean, it was just a barrage. And you know me. I am live and let live. Uh, leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. I'll tell you about Jesus, and if you choose hell, okay. That, that, I, I'm just not somebody to interject myself. Now, Beth is just the other way around. She'll get involved in everybody's thing no matter what's going on. And she thinks she's doing the will of God when she does it. I've learned just to keep my mouth shut. I used to, I used to try to stop that, and that would start a bigger fight, and, and you know, I just, whatever. But folks, we were, in, we were in such, it was such a mess that I had to say something. I mean, I'm sitting there with a 17-year-old daughter, and I'm, her ears are burning. And I'm thinking to myself, here's this little kid, four or five years old, whatever it is. And I'm thinking, they're going to grow up with this. What in the world are they going to be like? Man, I grew up in a day that if you said something, it didn't matter who you were around. Somebody's going to smack you. 
It didn't matter if it was the neighbor. It didn't matter if it was a stranger. Somebody's going to smack you and had a perfect right to do it because you were doing the wrong thing. But now it takes a village to raise a child. It looks to me like the village is going to hell. He uses this example. Then he uses this example, and I think it's great. He said, it is as much the duty of the church to awake as it is a fireman to awake when a fire breaks out in the night in a great city. The church ought to put out the fires of hell which are laying hold of the wicked. Should the firemen sleep and let the whole city burn down, what would be thought of such firemen? And yet their guilt would not compare with the guilt of the Christians who sleep while sinners around them are sinking stupid into the fires of hell. Folks, we need a revival. Now, as I said, let me remind you of what uh, we said before. Finney said that the means and the measures that God gives for revival will work just as sufficiently and just as effectively as a farmer planting crops in the ground, planting seed into the ground to get crops. What are those means and measures? There are two things that Finney said that were necessary for revival. Number one is prayer. See, here's the thing about Finney's revivals. Finney would have people praying ahead of time. He said that the key in every case, not some cases, not most cases, he said the key in every case for revival is what he called cottage prayers. In other words, before they'd ever get to town, he'd send somebody to start praying in homes. He'd send somebody to the town to go from place to place congregation to congregation if it took, if that was if the city was big enough to have a congregation he'd go from house to house looking for people who would be willing to pray he would gather people to pray and as a matter of fact there was a certain fellow by the name of father nash that found out about finney and and uh, was led of the lord to join with him and he wasn't on payroll he wasn't joined together uh, financially or any way like that wasn't on staff or anything but finney got to where he would go ahead of fin- uh, i'm sorry father nash would go ahead of finney's revivals and he would pray finney found out that father nash was going ahead taking it upon himself so he wanted to join in and find out what this guy was doing because it was working tremendously Father Nash would go to a town. He would join people together. People would find out, you know, word of mouth, whatever it was. And so there would be some people that joined together with him to pray in many cases. And then he would go every now and then and he would go with him or go to where he was. And he would listen to how Father Nash prayed. He wanted to know what is it that's working so well. Now, remember, folks, these are not two people that decided here's how we're going to do it. This is something that God put together that Finney wanted to find out about So Finney said that he would go into where Father Nash was praying and after Father Nash would get into a spirit of prayer, Father Nash would pray things like this. He'd say, God, you don't think we're not going to have a revival here, do you? See, he's putting the responsibility back on God. Finney said, Finney said this. He said, I learned from Father Nash how to pray. Not God let us have something, but to pray God, you don't think this is not going to work, do you? We've got your word on it. Finney came up with the saying, he said, the best kind of prayers are argumentative prayers. Now, he understands that because he's a lawyer. He understands how a lawyer makes his case. He realized that's what Father Nash is doing. He's making his case. 
Father, your word says such and such. Therefore, you don't think it's not going to happen here, do you? Now, some people might take that out of context and think he's being rude or bold or arrogant or whatever the case might be. But the fact is, he's just standing on the word. He's saying, I know that your word says this, and because it says this, I know you're on my side. So no matter what doubts the enemy might bring to my mind, I know that that you're on, on the board for this. I'm not working against you for this. I'm working with you for this. Now, what keeps us from doing that? I know what you're experiencing, folks. You're sitting there saying, yes, amen, on the inside. You're saying, yes, amen. Pastor Mike, I agree with you. But I'm not telling you anything new. And since I'm not telling you anything new, why haven't we been doing this already? It's an honest question. I'm not trying to put anybody on the spot. I'm not trying to, to find fault or point fingers at anybody. But why aren't we doing this already? We know this. Why aren't we doing this? The answer is very simple. Because we're all involved in our own stuff. You are, I am, everybody is involved in their own stuff. We've got other things that are taking a predominant place in our minds and our thinking in our lives instead of the move of God. Folks, that's the difference in the principle of religion that we're living and the spirit of revival. Because when the spirit of revival takes place, that becomes the most important thing in our lives. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, you don't understand. I'm in financial trouble and I need, to, I need a new job or I need to, things to work out in my business so that I can have enough money to, to, to make it through the month. I've got a family to support. Look, all of those things are good. All those things are right. All those things are important. But what you need to realize is, remember what the Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. See, any of us that are standing in this place today that have financial problems, the answer to our problem is not more money. The answer to our problem is to put the kingdom of God first and he'll add money to us. And in most cases, at least this is true for me, I would expect it to be true for you as well. Most of the times I've found myself in, gotten, gotten myself into trouble financially has been because I haven't put the things of God first to begin with. Now, we don't want to admit that, so I don't even expect people to nod their heads on that, but I know that's the way it works. That's certainly been the case for me. And when I turned it around, the way to turn it around is not to find some magical way to find money. The way to turn it around is put the things of God first and say, Father, I'm going to act on your word. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to look for your blessing to make it happen. And he does. He does. You know what I found? I learned this from Brother Hagin. I heard Brother Hagin say one time, anytime I need extra money, I just find some minister to give money to. I thought, are you kidding me? That's how it works. Well, at the time, I didn't have any extra money to give to anybody. But I've found, as, as the Lord's blessed me and the Lord's prospered me over the years, I have found that the most wonderful, joyful thing that I can do is give money to somebody secretly. And every time I do, God pours it back on me. I don't do it to get something. I'm not doing it because there's a need. I'm trying to meet the need. I'm not trying to work God. I'm not trying to work the system. I have just simply found that when I give something to somebody, and and I, I don't know if it's this way for everybody, but for me, if I don't do it privately, then it becomes a, uh, sometimes it can become a problem. 
But when I do it privately, when I do it secretly, my goodness gracious, you talk about me getting blessed. I get blessed because of the, the, the blessing that it brings to them, but then I get blessed because God adds more to me. Now, what are we doing? Well, we're acting on the word. We're putting the things of God first. Now, what's my alternative? Well, if I'm in a financial need, my alternative might be to pray and pray and pray. And, oh, God, please help me out. Okay. I've had God answer those prayers. But it works so much better when you do what the Bible says. Given, it'll be given unto you. It works so much better when you put the things of God first and let God add things back to you. And one of the reasons, at least for me, one of the reasons that it works so much better that way is because it really shows the motive of your heart. There's so many people that it seems to me that are trying to work the prosperity message to manipulate God. The prosperity message is not a manipulation tool. The prosperity message is a simple reality that Jesus paid a price for you to be financially provided for. Not just financially, but provided for in every area, but including financially. But it's not a means to manipulate God. It's not like you're facing, you know, some terrible thing. For me, it used to be roller coasters. I get on roller coasters with my kids. My kids loved roller coasters. My son did, at least. Loved roller coasters, and I can't stand them. I get on the roller coaster, and I make a deal with God every time. Okay, God, get me off of this one. And next time, you can't make deals with God, folks. There was one deal you made with God. That's when you accepted Jesus. That's the only deal there is. But I get it. I understand. We're all human. We're all involved in our own stuff. We're all self-interested. That doesn't mean we're selfish. Me wanting to provide for my family is not selfish. uh, That's a self-interest. I have a responsibility. I have a duty. See, here's where the devil beats some people up. The devil will attack people when they're believing for finances or even believing for their healing and say, well, you're just being selfish. No, I'm being self-interested. I have a great self-interest. Folks, God has a great self-interest. He put mankind here on the earth to be his family. That means he is self, has a self-interest regarding his family. That's not an ungodly thing. It's not a selfish thing the way it's supposed to work but at what point there's got to be some point at what point do we turn from being more self-interested to putting god in charge of our lives see the greatest uh, well let me say it this way the greatest way you can show self-interest is to let god in control because he'll take care of you better than you could take care of yourself Now, that's hard to come to the place. At least for me, it was. That was hard to come to the place to accept. How could God care about me more than I care about me? I really care about me. I mean, seriously care about me. How could God care more about me than I care about myself? That's hard to accept. But that's exactly what the Bible says. That's exactly what the Bible means in Luke 6.33 when it says, Give and it will be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall mean given to your bosom. One of the outstanding characteristics of the early days of the church, as recorded in the book of Acts, is that the people had the same care one for another. Something had to happen in them to change them. 
something had to happen to create an interest in them to look out for the other guy as much or more than they looked out for themselves. That's the spirit of revival. That's the spirit of revival. One of the things that we need to do along with praying, and praying is so important, but one of the things that we need to do is we need to to expect that the love of God would start taking control in our lives. Maybe it's something that we even make a matter of prayer. But for the love of God to take control of our lives to such a degree that we look for the other guy that's in trouble. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I need money. Fine, then find somebody else that needs it too. And give them something. Do something for them and put God's word to the test. What would a revival look like if not love for one another? And how are we ever going to love the world if we don't love each other? That might not come naturally to you. It doesn't to me. I've always said pastoring is great except for people. I've also said that God's got a sense of humor by making me a pastor. Because I am, I am really, my personality is really a, a loner type. And I'll have to say that you're about the only people in the world I do care about. But God's changing some of that. I say some of that in jest. I mean, that is my natural disposition. But God's changing me too. I think God needs to change us all. See, some people just care about everybody no matter what. But what does that mean? Does that mean we have feelings for each other or does that mean we're doing something out of love for one another? See, some of the people that I see that are looked at as, as uh, well, the, the kind of pastor you're supposed to be. You know, they're compassionate, they're loving, they're out there, they're Mr. Personality or whatever the case is. I, I, I don't get that at all. But some of the people that I see like that, when I get to know them, it's almost like it's a false front. It's almost like it's something that happens when other people are around, but that's not the way they normally are. Now, I'm not throwing rocks or criticizing anybody else, but I'm saying there's got to be something more than just the appearance of care and compassion and concern. There's got to be something that's real about this, doesn't there? I mean, Jesus was real about people. That doesn't mean he fixed everybody's problem. There were some situations where Jesus gave people responsibilities and told them, okay, now you go do this. He didn't solve everybody's problem by giving them a handout. He didn't solve everybody's problem by doing whatever they wanted done. He gave them responsibility. He delivered the word and he gave them a responsibility to act on it. But shouldn't there be some point that we care about each other? Shouldn't there be some point where we get real enough with each other to, 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 to really get involved with one another? That's part of being filled with the Spirit, whether you know it or not. Being filled with the Spirit, we boil down to just speaking in other tongues. Thank God for speaking in other tongues. Even for the Baptists now. <laughs> Missionaries. But there's a lot more to being filled with the Spirit and staying full of the Spirit than just speaking in tongues. There's a lot of people that are speaking in tongues that haven't developed compassion for one another. That's not the way it's supposed to be, folks. The presence and the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the abundance of the Holy Spirit on the inside should cause us to have the same care and concern and and willingness to help one another as we would have for ourselves. 
My prayer life used to be, I'm just going to be honest with you. My prayer life used to be, God, do something for me. Brother Hagin used to make the, the joke about the, uh, the guy that prayed, Lord, bless me and mine, us four and no more. Well, I'd laugh at that joke, but I'd think that's kind of describing me. I didn't even have four. It was just me. But I didn't care about praying for other people. I didn't care about what God did for other people. I mean, sure, you can say, do you care? Yeah, okay, I care. But what does that mean? It's just words. But shouldn't the presence of God on the inside of us, God so loved that he gave. Shouldn't the presence of God's love on the inside of us and the development of God's love on the inside of us make us givers? Now, I'm not just talking about money. You find somebody that's in need and you want to help and that's what God puts on your heart, then great. But there's a lot of other ways to give to people than that. You can give them a word of encouragement. You can give them time. You can give them any number of things. But shouldn't we be people that look out for one another? Shouldn't we be people that care? Can you believe I'm preaching this? And it's got to be a move of God started. What are we to do? Well, Finney found the key. And he said this in every situation. He said, you find a church where there's a, where there's a, a move of God. You find a church that's, that has what he called a spirit of revival. Now, let me, let me qualify this. In case you do some studying on Finney, I don't want you to be surprised by this. Finney said that revival was not miracles. Now, here's what he means. He's saying that the revival itself was not a miracle because it's not a sovereign act of God. It's a result of man putting the word of God in practice. So he said revival is not a miracle. And then he explained the early days of the church in the book of Acts this way. He said even the apostles, when they did miracles, it was to set up the message that brought the unsaved into the kingdom of God. So he's saying the same thing that we're saying. We don't want miracles just to to excite ourselves. We don't want miracles just to say that we had something. We want miracles so that people are blessed and so that it draws in the unsaved. Somebody was sharing with me what another minister, assistant pastor, I think it was, said about some of the things that we were preaching about miracles. They said, well, a wicked and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Well, folks, I'm not looking for miracles so that I can believe in Jesus. I kind of already do. I'm looking for miracles, not only to bless the people that are in need, but also to bring in the unsaved. Does that make me a part of a wicked generation? That makes me part of the will of God. That makes me part of God's plan for the church. So Finney said that miracles are not a revival. Miracles draw attention to the message. But he considered, and I think he's right on this, he considered the attitude of the people more than the move of God or, the, or what we would call the move of God. He considered the, the attitude or the heart or the, the, the tenderness of heart on the part of the people, the spirit of prayer and the spirit of love among the people. He considered that more important than the outward sign of the miraculous. Now, there were some miracles that happened in Finney's meetings, not many, but some. But when they did happen, he didn't make a big deal about them. He just said, well, that's a God. But he still kept the emphasis on the same things. 
spirit of prayer and an attitude of love among the people. What do we do? One of the things he said about uh, about uh, revival, he said that uh, his experience was this, and you can understand his experience because of his time versus our time. He said there would be times where during these cottage prayers, even before uh, he would come to a town or whatever, he said that there would be certain ones, and in every situation, whether, whether, wherever there was a congregation that had a spirit of revival, he said you'd always find at least one person praying. He said it never happens without at least somebody praying. He said it wasn't always the pastor of the congregation, the local congregation. He said sometimes the spirit of revival would swamp a local pastor who was involved in his own stuff. He'd be caught completely unawares. But because somebody was praying, somebody had a spirit of prayer for revival, specifically praying for revival, he said somebody would bring that revival in. He said very often what would happen is in the midst of Great sin, great trouble, great conflict. He said, don't ever let those things make you think that you can't have a revival. He said, that's very often the ground that God works in. I see that for our country. The worse and worse our country gets, the more excited I get on the inside because God's going to make a difference. Not to turn the country around. I'm not looking for the country to come back into the hands of conservatives or the next Ronald Reagan to come along or whatever. I don't think there is a man that can turn things around. I, I, it's kind of funny. I've always been involved in politics and always interested in in political stuff and that kind of thing. I couldn't care less about this next election. It doesn't matter. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me for everything, every bit of dirt to come out on Hillary Clinton and she still get elected. It wouldn't surprise me a bit for everybody to find out that the absolute truth of every wrong thing that, that has been surmised and maybe even more and still get elected. Wouldn't surprise me at all. Because that is the state of the American people. More specifically, that is the condition of the church. And wouldn't that be an ideal circumstance, an ideal ground for God to work in? So Finney said that there's always somebody praying for it. Well, we need people to pray for it here. We've already started that, but I hope today's been a little bit of an encouragement to show you the importance, the real importance for keeping it up. But then he said this. He said, and oftentimes God will give the prayer. He said, now non-praying people won't understand this, but God will give the prayer, the person person or people that are praying, he will give them the assurance that revival has begun even before it happens. He said, at that point, you can't stop it. Well, how do you get to that point? Pray. Turn with me over to Zechariah chapter 10. Isn't this what we just talked about for the last number of weeks that the early church did? They prayed for a move of God. They prayed that God would give them boldness to speak the word of God by stretching forth their hand to heal. And that signs and wonders would be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was the result of that? Folks, you need to realize there's a reason why the Bible tells us that every time there was an outpouring of, the, of the, the power of God, every time there was a move of the Spirit of God, it talked about thousands of people getting saved. There's a reason why it tells us that. Because it's when the spirit of revival takes hold of the church, that's when multitudes of people come into the kingdom of God. 
Now, some people have the idea that, well, if you add them just little by little, then you can assimilate them and you can bring them in and, and all that kind of stuff. And that might be true if the church was experiencing a consistent or constant Christ-like, Christ-character revival. But we're not. So what does God do? God answers the prayers of praying people to show himself strong, to reach the unsaved. Zechariah 10, verse 1, Ask ye of the Lord in the time of the latter rain. Folks, if these are not the last days, then I have no idea what they're supposed to be. Paul said that we were in the last days 2,000 years ago. If these are not the last of the last days, then what could that possibly look like? Maybe a better question or a better way to ask the question is this, how much further can this go? Ask you of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. Rain is always used in the Old Testament, well, Old and New Testament, as a type of a move of the Holy Ghost, the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Ask you of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright clouds. This word bright clouds is interesting because it's used one time in the book of Job's, book of Job, not Job's, but it's used one time in the book of Job and it's translated lightnings. If you look up the word that's, uh, that's translated, the Hebrew word that's translated bright clouds or lightnings, it also uses uh, a reference, always ha- also has a reference to the Old Testament glory of God being manifest in the temple. The cloud filled the temple and they couldn't stand to minister. The cloud came in and people fell on their face. It's a display of God's power and a manifestation of his presence. And how do you get that? God said you get it by praying. Ask you of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain. What does he mean, give them showers of rain? Outpourings of the Holy Ghost. That means if you pray, we can have an outpouring of the Holy Ghost that might look like healing one day. We might have an outpouring of the Holy Ghost on another, another day that looks like people getting filled with the Holy Ghost. We might have an outpouring of the Holy Ghost on one day that looks like people getting healed from wheelchairs. Another day it might look like people getting healed from blindness. It might look like something else one day, a different day. That's what it's talking about, showers of rain. It's not talking about a dumping of the Holy Ghost all in one dose. It's talking about if you pray, then God will give you showers of rain. That indicates to me a continual revival. Can't you see the continuous nature of that? Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to produce what? To everyone grass in the field. What is this grass in the field? It's the same thing that James 5, 7 speaks of when it refers to the precious fruit of the earth. Jesus is waiting. The reason he hasn't come back to get the church is because he's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. The only thing God has ever cared about from the earth is people. He's looking for people to come into the kingdom of God. How do you get that? By praying. How did Finney get that? By praying. How do we get that today? By praying. Now, folks, you may have to start out the way that I did. I first heard Brother Hagin talking about praying for the rain in 1981. He was talking about praying for the rain and the result of praying. We just prayed for uh, special prayer meetings on Monday nights Maybe six months, maybe not even that long. And then the Iron Curtain fell. Soviet Union collapsed. 
because that's what we were praying. We were praying for the precious fruit of the earth. We weren't praying for the precious fruit of America. We were praying for the church worldwide. We were praying for people to be able to come into the kingdom of God worldwide. And the Soviet Union collapsed. And we looked at each other and said, wow, this prayer stuff kind of works. It shocked us. Uh, it shocked me. Brother Hagen wasn't shocked, I guess. But it shocked me as quickly as things happened and as, as fast as they turned around because we prayed. We prayed for the rain. Well, we're in a different day now. The outpouring of the rain today would look differently than it did then. But God still cares about the precious fruit of the earth, not just the precious fruit of America. But that doesn't mean he doesn't care about America either. If it's the precious fruit of the earth, that means fruit here too. How do you get that? By praying. By praying. So what do we do? Well, for me, I started off just saying the words that Brother Hagin was saying. I listened to him pray in English for a little bit about the precious fruit of the earth and then would pray in tongues. I had no idea what we were praying in tongues about, but I can remember a lot of those prayer meetings where I'm praying in tongues, just letting the Holy Ghost give me words to say, thinking about my own stuff. Thank God he doesn't have to use your mind. Thank God the, the, the Holy Spirit on the inside of your heart bypasses your mind because sometimes it's hard to keep your mind engaged. You start getting your mind engaged and you'll start thinking about you. Why? Because you care about you. But the more and the more I pray, the more and more I have prayed this way over the years, especially for the last seven or eight years since the Lord prompted me to do this again, the more I'm able to pray for other people and not think about myself. Now, what are you praying? I have no idea. It's all in other tongues. But I know the Bible says when you're speaking in an unknown tongue, you're speaking mysteries to God. You're praying according to God's perfect will. So whatever it is I'm praying, whatever I'm prompted to pray in other tongues, I'm praying the will of God. Well, what do you think the will of God is for these last days? The Bible says Jesus is coming back for a glorious church. That cannot be us now. It's got to be something more than what we see today, doesn't it? Uh, it looks to me like it does. Well, if the Bible says that the glory of the last day church is going to be greater than of the former church when we see the people being healed in the streets in the book of Acts, meaning the former church, the early days of the church, then what can we expect now? At least that much and more. So what do you think if we pray according to the plan of God for the last day move of God, what do you think the Holy Ghost is having us pray for? Good stuff. Good stuff. If we'll only pray.